Hello and welcome to the show. And in the words of Steve Ballmer, tonight we're talking about developers, developers, developers. You know, those people who actually make the products and seem to spend half their time on Twitter shouting at product managers. But can't we all be friends? Speaking of which, if you're an old friend or new and you haven't done it yet, why not pop over to onenightinproduct.com, take a look around, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app to make sure you never miss another episode again. So yeah, product managers and developers, we all work on teams and organisations, but how can we work together more effectively? And come to think of it, how can we make the organisations better while we're at it? If you want to find out if shouting at people on Twitter about all this stuff actually works, keep listening to One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Alan Holub. Alan's an internationally recognized software architect, author, coach, and trainer who wants to help you build software better and build better software. Alan's all about the agility and development practices and none of these tiresome frameworks that might hold you back. Now, I have to say I thought I was into the agile mindset, but Alan makes me feel like I'm in a barrel going over a waterfall. Alan's also active on Twitter with a punchy, opinionated style that has led me to put my gum shield in and boxing gloves on as a precaution tonight. Hi, Alan. How are you tonight? Fine, thanks. Hopefully there won't be any severe injuries in the, in the well, course of the evening. I was, was going to say there's only two rules, no biting and no punching below the waist. So if we can keep to those, I think we'll be fine. So before we get into some of the meaty issues that we're going to be discussing tonight, I want to find out a little bit about you, what makes you tick, what you're up to outside of Twitter, where a lot of people are going to know you from. Right. Now, your bio says, I help you build software better and build better software. So what types of people are you helping and what are you specifically helping them with? Uh, you know, it, it's companies all over the map, all having to do with agile stuff. I use the word agile with some trepidation nowadays. It's Big A or little A? <laughs> little A. I'm trying to focus on agility in all of my marketing stuff because it kind of gets the idea across, but it's not the dreaded A word. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and sort of agile... Andy Hunt said Agile has come to mean do half of Scrum badly and use Jira. And I think he's right about that. (laughs) (laughs) So the way that I think about it is that I help people solve problems using lean and Agile thinking, which is a different thing than, you know, Agile with the quotes and the little trademark after it. (laughs) Well, you could trademark your approach as well if you want. But I guess coaching is an interesting one because you are a coach, right? Or at least partly a coach. Well, I guess we can discuss that, what that means, what that word means. Um, (laughs) I'm certainly a consultant. I can help people. I give them advice. I point out problems. I help them solve those problems. Coaching, (sighs) Lisa Adkins did, I think, none of us a service with her book on coaching because everybody read it. (laughs) And it's all very, it's so touchy-feely in places that it's driven the coaching community even more in that direction. Right. And it's the, the, I've, just, I've seen a lot of people that call themselves coaches that what they're talking about is life coaching. <laughs> they're like coaching certification boards and they have one of the certifications and, you know, and they say, it's my job to help people live their full potential. And I'm going, no, not as an agile coach. That's not your job. <laughs> it's your job to help them be more effective at producing software. And, <laughs> you know, and that involves a certain amount of kind of coaching technique in the sense that you can't just order people around, right? If you're going to be effective about this, you've got to sort of teach them the pluses and the minuses and give people a palette of things that they can choose from. And it's, it's not my decision what somebody needs to do. It's your decision. 
Yeah. So I see it as my job is providing you with the information that you need to make a good decision. Whether you want to call that coaching or not, I don't know. A lot of people use the word, but I don't know what it means. <laughs> so just to confirm, there are no certifications with your name on that you're selling to anyone at this moment. There are, <laughs> there are none, nor will there be. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> never say never, right? You know, if you ever need to get a new guitar in the background or something, there's always that. Also, you know, I, I did a lot of teaching for the UC Berkeley Extension, University of California Extension, and they gave out certificates, but they were certificates of attendance. You, you, you went to all the classes, and I, I, I'm happy with that, right? Oh, well, there you go. If you're going to measure something, you measure that, right? You're right. Certificates as to mastery. I have a hard time with that. You, <laughs> I can't vouch for somebody being a master if I don't work for them or work with them, at least. But how much of that work then, as you kind of just touched on where you're going in there, giving advice, giving your experience, giving them some pointers and the pros and cons, all of the stuff that obviously you do in your day job, you talk about on Twitter, but how much of it is like you going in there, doing all of that, doing some sessions, whiteboards, whatever, some group sessions, throwing the Batman smoke grenade on the floor and flying off and letting them just deal with it? Like, do you have any kind of ongoing relationships with these people or do you kind of just... Well, yeah, I prefer to have an ongoing relationship. It depends on the company. Right. The, the, the jobs that I've liked the most, I've had ongoing relationships that lasted at least a year or so for the, with the company. Uh, sometimes they just want me to come in and teach a two day class and get out is that, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not cheap, right? None of the really good consultants are cheap. And yeah. though they probably wouldn't have any problems paying my rate to Deloitte, they have hard problems paying my rate to me. So <laughs> I, I don't know what that's about, but. On the other hand, the amount of money I can save a company is huge. Same for you, right? Say the same for everybody who's competent. And well, I'm glad you think I'm competent, Alan. That's well, a, that's a, <laughs> I'm just judging by what I read. I'm going to put that on my gravestone. <laughs> but yes, and the the you know the the amount of money saved is always much higher than the fee, no matter how high the fee is. If the oh, person's yeah. a good person, right? They're, they're doing their job. One hundred percent. But you know, I think the biggest problem is that. Of the things I do, right? Some of it is just kind of nut and bolts. How do you do stuff? Classes. How do you put together a user story? In fact, I'm doing a public class on user stories in a month or so. Mm -hmm. And how to come up with an agile-friendly architecture. And what are the mechanics of event storming? What are the mechanics of test-driven development? That kind of stuff, right? Just nuts and bolts. It's got to be TDD, right? It has to be TDD. I mean, that's your thing, right? Well, TDD in my... I extrapolate TDD a little bit further than other people do, right? So this TDD, as Kent came up with, it started out with about with this kind of small thing for developing the code that's in front of you, yeah, right. And then Dan North came along and made it a bigger thing, right? And sort of brought in all of acceptance criteria and business criteria and that kind of stuff. And I'm I'm taking it a step further, all the way out to something that's even more abstract and more general. And then, but that doesn't mean that I give up on the stuff in between, right? I do all three, yeah. So I'm 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 an outside in kind of person and I like to start at the at the domain and work my in my way into the stories using TDD inspect and adapt and you know do a little work and run some tests right that kind of thinking that theory but it encompasses pretty much everything. But the point is is that if I'm really going to be successful at making the company more agile to use the dreaded A word <laughs> the agile with a lowercase a uh, the people I have to be talking to are the C-levels, right? Are the, are the people that are really in charge of the corporate culture. And 99% of the time, the people who find me and like me and want to hire me are the engineers, not the C-levels. Yeah. And that disconnect is hard, right? Because they're in a position where they then have to sell my services for me to a C-level who's dubious about whether he or she needs them. And 
it makes for an interesting problem, right? Because <laughs> often, often I'll be brought in to do one thing and end up doing something else just because people understand that it's useful. You know, and I, I don't know any way around that particular problem. I wish I did from a business point of view. I wish I did, but I don't, I don't know one. Well, I was going to say, though, because you touched on it just there. I mean, and it's long been a suspicion of mine that the vast majority of executives in any company, from the most agile to the least agile, probably don't really care too much about how the sausage is made as long as the sausage is made, right? Like, that's a disappointment for people like you and to some extent well, the, for people like me. But the thing is, is that what this. I can certainly help people with making sausage, <laughs> but that's not going to get any agility into the organization, right? Yeah. So the, that's the problem, though, is that they'll bring in somebody like me with the intent of teaching people sausage making, when really what I'm saying is, do you really want to be in the sausage business at all? Is there the, <laughs> right? And the the that disconnect is sometimes frustrating. Is the the sometimes it's fine. Um, sometimes I end up sort of moving up through the organization and making an impact. And I like that. Sometimes the person on top will be some kind of tyrant who, <laughs> well, one of the most unpleasant jobs I've ever had was working for a company where the people I was working with were great. They were spectacular. Yeah. And the people who were running things were some of the worst people running things I've ever seen in my life. They were tyrants. They held the people who were doing the work in contempt. They would sneer and roll their eyes and talk about learned helplessness and all of this stupidity. Right. And yeah. this wasn't learned helplessness. This was actual helplessness is that the people who were treating the people who were doing the work with such contempt were causing huge numbers of problems. But they made it very clear that if I brought those issues up, the work was done. I was out right. of there. And they, in fact, did fire me once, um, then reluctantly brought me back and then fired me again. Oh, wow. But, uh, because I wouldn't shut up. Right. Is that they, <laughs> they're, That's not like you, Alan. We're not hiring you to to enlighten people. We're not hiring you to get people to think. We want you to teach them test-driven development. And if if you escape from that silo of teaching test-driven development, we've we've had it with you. Go away. And and they were sort of a fake scrum shop getting more and more fake by the minute. In the time that I was there, they had migrated away from Agile in several critical ways. And they just didn't want help. So, you know, there you are. There you go. So what kind of percentage of firms do you reckon actually do kind of engage with you at that top level and actually enable you to make some proper organizational change rather than just teaching developers how to make sausages more efficiently? Among small companies, it's very high. It's the, most yeah. of the places where I do the most good are the startups and the sort of up to medium-sized organization, which is you know, maybe a thousand people. Once you get above that, the resistance to being agile gets stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where it's just this is not worth it to me to beat my head against a brick wall. I'm just not interested. <laughs> so if it was a really big company and I got called up by the CEO and said, can you help us? And we had a talk and they were committed. Um, I'd be all in favor of doing that. I would love to have another job like that. I'd have them occasionally and rarely, and I really enjoy them. But if I'm like the enemy, I'm not interested. <laughs> right? And if what they want is for somebody to come in with an army of trainers and force everybody to march in lockstep to a canned process. I don't do that. But that's often what they want. So there's kind of a, I don't know, a tension there. Well, speaking of tension, as I mentioned earlier, you're also very visible on Twitter. Uh, some might say that you're, in fact, some people have said that you're somewhat outspoken. I know some people have said that they don't particularly jive with your style. Some people have even said that they've stopped even following you at all because they just don't really want to read that stuff anymore. So you've obviously got a reputation. I guess I have to ask, is this all part of a facade that you're putting on 
to some extent to just drum up business? Like, are you naturally punchy or are you a bit of a teddy bear, really? <laughs> I'm an introvert, but people don't know what the word introvert means. So that's <laughs> not a, you know, if I, if I want to relax, I don't go to a loud party. But the, no, me the, neither. Yeah, most of, almost all programmers are introverts. introverts. What introversion really means is that you're able to focus. And if we couldn't do that, we couldn't be developers, right? Is that the, we're all introverts. Just for the record, before you uh, start to cozy up to me too closely, I must say, I've not been a developer for a few years now. So you, you can have at me if you want. Still, you know, it's the, <laughs> it's the mindset, right? And oh, 100%. But the, the way that I'm looking at it is that I just kind of got tired of walking on eggshells all the time. And a lot yep. of the communi- coaching community, that's all that they ever recommend. They say, oh, my God, you can't say that. You can't just say stuff. You, because people will then push back as hard as you're pushing forward, right? And I'm going, oh, I'm not pushing. I'm just speaking my notion of what the truth is in a direct way. Yep. And if you can't handle directness, that's fine. But I don't see that I should need to preface everything I should say with, well, in my opinion, it seems to me that maybe in some situations it might help a little <laughs> bit if you had thought about doing it like this, right? And I just don't see any point in that. Is that the, the, if people want help, I'll help. And if they don't want help, then I'm not going to help them. And I don't see why I should pander to the people who don't want help. Pandering isn't the right word, really. But I don't see why I should. I don't need to spend a lot of energy trying to convince people of stuff. Diana Larson said it pretty well. She said, I'm not in the convincing business. And I kind of agree with that. I'm not in the convincing business. So if you've already been convinced and you want help, that I'm happy to do. But I'm not going to convince you to be agile or convince you that agility is a good thing or convince you that waterfall command control stuff is not a good thing because I'm just not interested in doing that. It's too painful. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I get what you mean. I think one of the questions that arises from that is whether you feel that that kind of limits the impact that you could make either via your consulting directly or via the visibility that you get from Twitter because, of course, you could go out there, be a little bit more meet people in the middle and maybe help to change a few more minds by making them feel that this isn't quite such a big change do you, do you feel um, that you're risking just sort of preaching to the choir if you're being so kind of No, because I can, help them with, I can help them with details that they don't understand. Is the, there are plenty of people that are doing what you're saying. Yeah. And, I, and there are very few people that are just coming in and being straightforward and honest with people, and I would rather be that person. And, the, the, um, you know, I'm going to do what makes me happy. I'm getting old enough at this point that I'm not willing to spend any brain cells doing stuff that doesn't <laughs> make me happy anymore. And Having to having to walk on eggshells in order to not get fired is not my idea of being happy. So the the I just won't do it. And the 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 thing is is that if somebody knows that they need to change in some way, and they just want help with details, you don't really want all of that dancing around the edges stuff. You want straightforward advice and and some way to execute on that. And uh, there are enough people out there in that state, then I think I can help them, you know? And the the people that follow me on Twitter mostly, not all, but mostly agree with at least the basic premises that I approach things with. And, you know, you were saying there are people that don't follow me anymore because, well, I don't know why, right? Most of those people fall into the Craig Larman camp, right? And Larman's Laws camp. The the basic idea of Larman's Law is that, he is that he's saying that the point of, uh, of most organizations is to maintain the status quo. Right. And they'll do anything that they can to maintain the status quo. And Larman's third law in particular is the one that I think is important because 
as soon as you start talking about stuff, they'll start saying, well, in the real world, we can't do that. And that's a fantasy. And that's theoretical. And that's ivory tower. And that it would no, that's never going to work. And really, these are all just, just smoke screens <laughs> meant to hide the fact that you think that what you're doing is just peachy and you're not about to change. And if that's the situation, fine. I'm, I, I have no problems with that. If what you're doing is working really well for you, you should absolutely keep doing it. Right? I, have no, I have no problems with that at all. But yeah. a lot of the people who fall into that category, what they're doing isn't working particularly well for them. They just don't want to admit it for one reason or another, or they can't. Right? So some of it is just training. Is the, you look at all the MBA programs and stuff, and people are trained that a business must do X. And in come the Agile people, and they say, no, no, have you really thought that through? (laughs) Maybe we don't want to be doing X. Maybe we want to be doing something else, right? Estimation (laughs) is the one that, you know, the big one that comes to mind immediately. And, you know, if you get somebody who has the idea of, if we did what you suggested, we wouldn't even be a business because businesses don't do that, right? And well, they're, they're... I don't want to make fun of those people as they've been brainwashed, admittedly. At least it seems that way to me. But it's what they believe. It'd be dumb for me to say, you don't believe what you actually believe. They believe that, and that's fine. But I can't make much of an impact in that kind of situation. So we need some kind of intermediary type, sort of someone in between you and them that can kind of transform them enough that they are prepared to take some of your ideas on board. Is that what we're saying? We need some kind of Demi-Allen. I don't think that'll work either, is that you've got to get people to understand that they need to make some changes if they want to improve. And some people get that and some people don't. And I don't don't see that there's any strategy or something that you would use to trick people into suddenly being changed, not being change averses, (laughs) that they either are or they aren't. And if there's a way to get people to change that, which is kind of a personality trait, I don't know how to do it. I'm not a trained psychologist. I have no idea how to do that kind of stuff. So I... I don't concern myself with them because I can't, I can't help them. That's fair enough. But I guess then that's talking a lot about some of the organizational muscles, the instincts, the biases, and the opinions that some of the people within the organization have up to and including the management and the executive suite. But you've obviously also got developers in these companies. And some of these developers, I've seen replying to some of your tweets, maybe pushing back on not necessarily the idea of being agile with a small a or the idea of doing some of the stuff, but maybe pushing back, for example, on, well, we don't want to do tests or tests slow us down, or what do you mean we shouldn't use databases in our microservices or all of the other things that kind of come up from time to time? Um, because, you know, we all know that developers can be opinionated, right? Yeah, so, but, that, you know, I, again, people have to make their own mistakes. And, <laughs> you know, if somebody's saying, well, I think we should have a big centralized database with microservices, they'll learn pretty quickly why that's a bad idea. Right. And what I, what I can do is I can try and uh, head off some of that pain and say, it's probably not going to work. Here's why. And here's something that will work better. And, but I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell them what to do is that that's, that's how agile would that be? <laughs> there you go. You can't micromanage a man and you can't yeah, micromanage. You can micromanage people is that you, what you can do is provide information and let people make their own decisions. And that's fine. Right. And the, a lot of times though, what I get in the way of pushback is not, we don't think this is a good idea, but rather they won't let us do it. Yeah. Whoever they is. And well, they, them is sometimes the team itself, right? But, uh, yeah. but often it's not, right? Often the team really is good and they really know what they're doing. The company I was talking about a few minutes ago, right, with our tyrannical leaders, the, 
the people in the teams knew what to do, but they were in an organization that was ordering them around and punishing them deeply if they didn't follow orders. And they were afraid. There was a lot of fear in that organization. Yeah. And, you know, I, re I remember one situation where me and a colleague, without it being scripted, sat down and did an hour-long presentation on what user stories are and how to actually deal with them. And they flew into a panic. They were saying, <laughs> oh, my God, what you're telling us to do is not what the head honcho chief agile person told us what to do. So we, it's wrong. Everything's wrong, right? And they were like running around like chickens with their heads cut off in a panic for two days. And not only that, they were also in a panic because the this, this scheduled half hour meeting went half an hour over. And I, and I you know, I, it was discouraging. The whole thing was discouraging. But nonetheless, even those people understood the difference between things that work really well and things that they were permitted to do. Yeah. You know, and ultimately in that particular organization, the being permitted overruled the doing what I think best. And I, that's unfortunate, but there it is. Yeah, well, it does happen. But you recently said the best way to undergo an agile transformation, again with a small a, is not to get coaches and frameworks and the like, but just remove the blockers to agility and then the rest will just kind of take yeah, care of itself. I agree with that. I agree with myself. Fancy that. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you better agree with yourself, Alan, otherwise this is going to go all <laughs> off the rails. But, but does that actually really happen? Because I can understand where you're going with that one. And obviously, if people want to do it and they're being blocked from doing it, like you just say, then obviously, you know, you take the chocks off and they can take off. But I also have this image in my head, and this is at least partly based on past experience of my own, is where sometimes you feel like maybe you're working both with developers and to some extent with product managers that have maybe never worked for a particularly well-functioning company, and none of them have got any instincts or real muscles or anything in that area. And if you just left them to it and took away the blockers, they'd kind of just sort of sit there and probably do it roughly the same way because they've never seen it done better. Like, Do you think that it's optimistic to think that this can happen like that? One of the primary blockers is not being a learning organization. Yeah. One of the primary blockers are things that are in the way of people learning. Yeah. And those can be anything from bureaucratic blockers, like you've got to get permission from your boss who has to get permission from their boss, who has to get permission from their boss. And Every penny has to be justified and yada, 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 right? All this, this, these insane processes that cost more than the classes that they are not letting you take because they're too expensive, <laughs> right? So there's that problem. Yep. But it could also just be a culture. You know, there, the other blockers to learning is not having time to learn, right? So removing the blockers doesn't mean that you leave people adrift. It means that you remove, you have to remove the blockers carefully in a way that makes sure that people can learn and become more agile in the lowercase sense. So starting with the, the two things that I usually start with are trying to get some scope for learning, setting up a learning environment. Last time I was brought in as a, a interim consulting architect for a company, first thing I did was I set up a quote university so that we could all have a, at least a, a few hours a week. It sounds like there's some diplomas or some certificates in there somewhere. No, but it was just, here's how, you know, I, I did a bunch of lectures and then I kind of ran out of stuff to talk about and I started getting everybody else involved in the lectures. And after a while, it was just going by itself, right? Is so that the people in the organization were teaching each other how to do things, which is how it should work. Yeah. Right. So that's eliminating a blocker though, right? Because there, 
the blocker there was that people weren't teaching each other. So we're trying to set up things so that people can teach each other. And that's, that's a good thing, right? And the other thing that is usually a blocker is getting, getting the work under control is, a, is an important first step. And the blocking thing there is this notion of we have to have a big upfront plan and follow it to the letter. And you see that in backlogs that have 10 years worth of work in them, and <laughs> which continue to grow, right? And that kind of stuff. We have to have a plan, oh, yeah. right? So those, again, are the sorts of things that, that are creating friction that you need to work on. So you can say, all right, let's make the backlog have a month's work on it. Just let's remove some of that friction, right? Because that, that's a blocker to change there is the fact that you feel compelled to do everything in the backlog in the order it's presented. That's preventing you from being <laughs> agile because you're afraid to add anything because that would just make the backlog even bigger, right? So it's a process, you can, you, but it's not just... Just stop everything you know is wrong. Just stop doing all of it, and I'm I'm I, I'm done now. So I'll I'll leave right and leave all this chaos behind you. Is I don't I don't see any value in that particularly. No, I think that thing about backlogs is really interesting, and I know that you're in favor of very small or no backlogs yourself. But at the same time, I think even when people do have backlogs, there's almost this implicit expectation from maybe the rest of the organization that maybe have visibility on that that eventually some of this stuff's going to get done. When we all know, you know, I know, every developer in the world knows that probably 90% of the tickets on that backlog are never, gonna are get never ever going to get, get done, done, ever. Like there's 0% chance that they're ever going to get done. And the, which is to say you're just lying to yourself. Yeah, it's just a comfort blanket, right? So you can say that you've got that feedback back and we'll look at it one day, but that day literally never comes. So address that. And there are lots of ways to address it. You can make the backlog smaller. Right. If it's in a, if yep. you really want to go for a shock and awe approach, you can just throw it out. Just delete it. All. Just throw the whole thing out. Right. If how many times you've done that though, Alan? Come on, that sounds like the sort of thing that a few people. I've done it twice. Uh, how did it go? I've done it twice, and it's been very successful both times. Oh wow! Usually, I get too much resistance to get them to throw it out entirely. Yeah, I can imagine. But a lot of companies that I work with don't have backlogs. If you start when I start out with the startup, we can set up a process that works off the bat. Right, the the biggest is Scrum. I, I'm as you probably know from Twitter, not much of a Scrum fan. And oh, don't worry, we're getting yeah. to Scrum in a minute. Don't worry. But um, <laughs> the th the the thing is, is that Scrum is not. I I go back and forth about Scrum. Is that for a knowledgeable <laughs> team, I think of Scrum as mostly harmless. To steal a phrase from Douglas Adams. Oh yeah, it doesn't do a lot. It doesn't do any good at all. But it doesn't do much damage. On the other hand, if you're just starting out <laughs> and you, you do the scrum thing, and that's the first thing you've ever seen, and that's the way you define agile, and it sets a, a I don't know how to say it, but it, it, it kind of gives you a mindset of this is the way we must work. Yeah. Then it is doing active damage at that point. And what started me on this is that concept of backlog. That's a scrum thing. That's not an agile thing. Notion of app backlog does not appear anywhere in the Agile Manifesto. It was not really part of any of the early Agile processes. Scrum, there's a great propaganda machine backing the Scrum Industrial Complex where they try and present <laughs> themselves as the first and best and only Agile process, and that's all complete BS. You know, Scrum, Scrum the origins of Scrum go back a while, but the origins of everything go back a while, is that we can, we can say the origins of Agile really are in the 70s with the Toyota production system or even further back than that, right? And uh, yeah, to say Scrum is the oldest process because of that, uh, you know, the the new new product development game paper, 
And, you know, that's a great paper. And what they're describing has nothing to do with Scrum, at least not as Scrum, not Scrum as presented. <laughs> and, you know, and to argue Jeff was doing Scrum in 1998. Well, Kent was doing XP in 1990. All of us were doing something agile back then before the word agile existed. <laughs> the actual history of Scrum is that XP was dominant for years. The problem with XP is that traditional management doesn't much like it. Yeah. Doesn't have, a, doesn't have that wrapper of bureaucracy around it that management likes. So Scrum came in relatively late. I'm, I'm just guessing here, but I would say 2005, plus or minus. And yeah. with all of their certification and insanity, but the, the business people that wouldn't accept something like XP because they saw it as chaotic would accept something like Scrum because there was some structure there. So what they were selling was a structured wrapper around Agile. But the more structure you add, the less agility you have. So it kind of got things started in the wrong direction. And things like backlogs, this notion, well, we're Agile, so we have a backlog. And I'm going, no, that's a Scrum <laughs> thing. That's not an Agile thing. We were Agile for 10 years before Scrum came along with its backlogs. And no, you don't need a backlog. And you don't need a PO. And you don't need a Scrum master. And you, you don't need a sprint. And you don't need any of that garbage. Right. And um, the, but people get locked into thinking that it's somehow mandatory. I'm sure you're more of a release train type of guy anyway, right? It depends <laughs> on how you define release train. <laughs> Certainly not in the safe sense. Well, I'm talking about the safe one. But, you know, the, the notion of a release train came out of Spotify and they do a pretty good job of it. The basic idea of we're going to release every Friday regardless. Yeah. And if you don't want people to see what you're working on, put it behind a feature flag. I, I can get behind that. I see nothing wrong with that. Uh, me too. I'd like to release more often than once a week. But the point is, is that your code is always releasable. Yeah. But if you don't want somebody to see it, you hide it behind a flag. Oh, that's I see nothing wrong with that as a philosophy at all. That's fine with me. No, I, I love that as a philosophy. But is it also fair to say, though, that, I mean, it's easy for us to dig into Scrum because there are so many poor Scrum yeah implementations around the world i also think though the one thing i mean i agree with you by the way i'm, like, I'm not a massive scrum no. fan I, I know that lots of people use it it's kind of okay but at the same time i don't live no. or die by it but i also do get quite cross sometimes when i look at people digging into it and and slating it when they then describe something which even the scrum guy didn't say to do like it's just some random hodgepodge of garbage. scrum and waterfall and micromanagement and other stuff that they just kind of squelch together. And then they sit there and say, well, that didn't work very well. Scrum sucks. Well, yeah, there's a lot of that. But And Agile too, not just Scrum, but Agile. But the you know, same process. But the thing is, is that I know a few Scrum trainer types, mostly with Ken's organization. And I like them as people. And I, I respect a lot of them. A lot of them are really good Agile people. They really know what they're doing. But they've kind of jumped under the Scrum bandwagon, which sort of, I think, makes them less effective, to be honest, as, as teachers and stuff. But the, the point there is that they're always saying, but that's the bad Scrum people. <laughs> and if you do it right, if you do the good Scrum stuff, it's great. And I look around me, though, and I'm going, so many people are doing it wrong. Maybe the problem is not that there's all these people that are not doing it right, but rather that the framework itself is flawed. Right? There you go. The, the, it's, it's more basic than people will imagine. Purposefully incomplete, Alan. Remember, purposefully incomplete. Like that helps. 
Right. And it's, or to put it another way, even if you do it perfectly, according to the scrum guide, it's not possible to be, to do it right. You know, and I, so I bring up with a lot of those people, I will bring up the ambiguities in the scrum guide, of which there are many. Oh, yes. Where it'll say one thing in a pair at the beginning of a paragraph and it'll say something else at the end of the same paragraph. And the honest people I talk to kind of get these sheepish expressions on their face and go, oh, well, yeah, but <laughs> what it really means is, and I'm going, but if you have to resort to what it really means is, then you've failed as a process. Yep. Right? Is that people are doing Scrum thinking that they're doing the right thing, and yeah, they're reading the Scrum Guide. Yeah. And they're doing what they think it says, and they end up doing this crazy stuff, and maybe the problem is very basic. <laughs> To what Scrum is, and you go even further <laughs> back, though, right? And, and you and I think, well, at the core of agile thinking is this notion of a self-organizing team, and the notion that you give people the support that they need to get the work done, and then let them do it. And yep, if you're going to be agile, then you've got to be able to have the agility of being able to define your own processes, right? You've got to define processes that work for you. So, at the core of Scrum is a refutation of that. Saying, no, you can't define something that works for you. You have to have sprints <laughs> and you have to have sprint reviews and you have to have daily scrums and you and go through the, the litany. Yeah. So the core idea of a framework, and this is not just scrum, it's any of them, but the core of idea of a framework flies in the face of agile thinking, right? And the way to, the way to be agile is to learn and to come to some decisions and make some decisions and to develop a process that works for you. No, that makes sense. But you mentioned it just now, and you've mentioned it a bit on Twitter. You seem to be, I mean, you've kind of already touched on your distrust of micromanagement and to some extent management in general. You also seem to have a bit of a dig at product owners and product people in general. Now, this this is getting into my world now, Alan, so we have to be very careful. Well, good, we can argue about something. But <laughs> we can argue about something. Well, I was going to say, like, I mean, obviously, I understand what you mean about wanting to do things in a properly agile way, not micromanaging, not being too prescriptive and not being too dogmatic. And I think one of the most interesting things that I see online is a lot of people maybe have dealt with quite poorly performing product managers that are probably working in quite poorly performing organizations. I guess at the nub of it, can we be friends, Alan, as product people <laughs> and developers, or do we have to always be shouting at each other? I don't think we need to be shouting at each other. I don't think there's anything good coming out of that. The, there are a couple of ways to, to say this. First of all, I have nothing against product management. Ah, uh, you saw it here first. Product management as a skill and a specialty is essential. And that product managers do things that desperately need to get done, which developers will not do if left to their own devices. <laughs> right? Things like market analysis, right? Is that somebody's got to do that. Yep. And coming up with viable experiments in order to verify ideas. Product managers, are that's their job. That's what they do. Yep. So in any conversation about developing the software, having a voice in the conversation that's bringing those perspectives is, is essential. Goes beyond invaluable, it's essential. So I have no problems with, with that, right? With the role of product management. But where we might, well, it's not really a but, but I think the place <laughs> where we might differ is how to integrate that then into the organization and into the process. Yeah. I don't believe in having a siloed product organization. And I don't believe even in having a named product or organization if the way they say that is 
I'm one of the product people and I'm working with the team, right? What I want to see is teams that have product expertise on them. People, the product people will say, well, well, yeah, but we've got to get together as product people and talk about products sometimes. And I'm going, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I did no problems with that. But it's not because you are the product team and that's your, that's the basis from which you work, but rather that we're working on the development teams, right? So in other words, when I think about a product team, I, I don't see any difference between product team and development team. And that well, the Spotify guild system comes to mind immediately as we're talking about what we're doing, right? I, see that, I think that's great. Yeah. Right. So product people have to get together and discuss product things that span the teams occasionally. So there has to be some alignment mechanism inside the organization that allows that to happen. But I really disagree with the idea of there being a centralized product organization that's making those kinds of decisions, which are then diffused out into the organization as a whole. And I really disagree with the notion of a product owner who makes all the decisions. That's just a single point of failure as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't want to have single points of failure in the system. Well, I mean, I disagree with product owners in general, to be honest, as a concept. I think that what's happened, and I blame SAFE for this to some extent, is mm -hmm. product owners have been kind of, they're now being hired as product owners. Like that's the job title on the job description. And they're being hired very specifically to just jockey the backlog and move stuff around and yeah. tell the developers what to develop next. And like, there's obviously always a bit of that when you're talking about prioritization and, you know, explaining what it is that's important and where we should be going. And I think that is the product manager's particular, you know, skill set, role or whatever right. contribution to the team. But just having someone whose only job is to sit there moving the backlog around and write tickets feels like a real, right. like that's where it starts to blend and bleed a little bit for me. I think it was Jupiter Hill who called them ticket monkeys. Is that I? <laughs> I might be wrong. I apologize to Jupiter if he didn't come up with that, but I love the term. Right, but we don't need that. Yeah, absolutely. And the, which brings us back to backlogs, right? That whole idea of a backlog and tickets and all of that craziness has nothing to do with agility. I don't think it helps, right? And if you look at you look at the original idea of user stories, right? The work that that Ron Jeffries and Chet Hendrickson and Kent Beck were doing in the original XP team. Yep, a story was a very small thing. Some of you could write on a on an index card. Ron, Ron just uh, uh, published a Twitter a picture of his desk, which has got a bunch of yellow stickies stuck on it. Right? Those are his stories. Those are his user stories. A sentence or two on a sticky that's enough to remind you that you have to have a, a detailed conversation later. And those are easy to manage and easy to get rid of and easy to easy to do everything with because there aren't any details there. That has turned into this monstrosity. These ticket monster problems, right? Where people have these, <laughs> a story will go out to pages and have detail after detail after detail, and you've got to estimate it and then re-estimate and then re-estimate the estimate. And uh, it's just insanity as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so the product management, getting back to product management, if we're talking about stories in the original Hendrickson, Jeffries, Beck kind of sense, organized on something like a product map, like a Jeff Patton style product map, or a product map, not a story map, rather. Yeah. Uh, that's great. That's exactly what we should be doing, right? The whole idea of a user narrative and coming up with stories and see how they fit into the narrative and trying to go, you know, product use flow and all, all that kind of stuff. That's all really valuable stuff. We should all be doing that. Yeah. But beyond that, no. <laughs> right? The people that, that get jobs as POs, you will see that in those job descriptions, facility with Jira is always a primary requirement. And, 
And, you know, and no, I'm sorry. I said, that's, that has nothing to do with being agile. That has to do with having an upfront waterfall plan. And you can call it whatever you want. You can call it a backlog, but if it's a, pl- if it's a waterfall plan, it's a waterfall plan. Calling it a backlog doesn't change that. But you explicitly have blamed Jira before for driving some of these practices as well. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, because people don't know better is that uh, they, well, you know, they get a CSPO or something and then they get their first job as a green PO that's never done any work and they don't really know how to do product work at all. And they're told, well, your job is to manage these JIRA tickets. And then they learn that's the way to do it. And then you do that with a whole organization, bring in the army of scrum trainers and get everybody to do scrum and nobody knows any better. So JIRA it doesn't control, but it strongly influences the way they work. It's very opinionated, juries. You know, you tend to do the things that make Jira happy rather than doing the things that, <laughs> that make for effective product development, and it doesn't work, at least not well. Yeah, I think also you get the wonderful situation sometimes where there's only certain people that can do certain things in Jira as well, and everything kind of gets micromanaged at the permission level within Jira as well. So, oh, no, you've got, you got to speak to Dave over there to, if you want to change the story points on a ticket or that sort of thing. Yeah, but you shouldn't. Uh, what do you need? To, I don't know what you need any of that for. <laughs> but you look at Jira and what does it do? First of all, it does surveillance. Yep. And we should not be working in a surveillance culture. Secondly, what it's doing is estimation. But estimation makes no sense at all at the backlog level because, as you just said, you're going to throw out 90% of it. Uh, fingers crossed. So, what possible value is an estimate that's based on something where 90% of it is not going to ever be implemented? Is what, what have we achieved there, right? And it, it encourages you to collect too many details too soon, right? So it, it, the, there's just a lot of stuff that it's kind of encouraging you to do that's not helping. And it would be best not to have it. You know, I, every, the most effective organizations I've ever worked in, including the ones that I've been CTO for, we had sticky notes up on the wall. That was it. That's all we needed. Yeah, And now that everybody's working remote, we have sticky notes in, in Miro, but it, it's still just sticky notes. It's nothing fancy. And that's all you need. And the, the, to argue otherwise is to argue that you need, that the plan is more important than the people. Individuals is what they say. Individuals and interactions over processes and the tools. I don't really believe quite that anymore. I wouldn't use the word individuals. I think we need to be working in a collaborative unit. Mm -hmm. But certainly people and their interactions is more important than any kind of process or tool. And what's happening is the tools are dominating. And the process, you know, we're a scrum shop and we use Jira and we do scrum. And so here we have a process and a tool. And where are you talking about people interacting in that process? Yeah. Right. And I don't hear it, right? The emphasis is all on the process and the tools rather than on the people. And specifications. Yeah, specifications and schedules and deadlines and just all of this craziness, which is the norm under a waterfall phase-gated situation. And they're core concepts that people hold on to with a death grip and are unwilling to let go of. (laughs) Agile is all about letting go of that death grip and it's scary. And it's not, it kind of throws people into a world that is unfamiliar, so they don't like it. So they lash out against it, and that's understandable. I, you know, nothing, you know, it's, reason, it's a reasonable reaction, all things considered. But to argue that Agile is just this thin veneer of, you know, scrum masters and stuff put on top of what we're doing now, well, that sort of misses <laughs> the point. So get the Sharpie, put two weak lines on the Gantt chart. 
and you're done, right? Yeah. But in your view, what is then the best use of a product manager's time during the development process? So week by week, as the team are doing their thing, they're building out and executing against the overall vision of the company, doing it the way they feel best and using all of the, or whatever approach that they want, all of the stuff you kind of generally recommend, I guess. But what does the product manager do for you in that? Let's talk about a few of them. One of them is in an ideal world, you would be releasing to your actual customers, maybe multiple times a day and getting feedback from your actual customers and adjusting what you're doing based on that feedback. Most of us, no matter how well-intentioned we are, can't do that. We don't have that kind of daily or hourly contact with an actual customer. So we have to have somebody who speaks for the customer. And I think a product manager is a good person to be doing that. So I think one of the most important things that they do during development is answer questions. Yep. In one particularly bad organization, I just enforced a rule on them. I said, if you have a product, if you have a question for the product manager, they must answer it within two minutes. <laughs> I don't care what meeting they're in. I don't care where they are. If they're talking to the CEO, I don't care. A question comes up. You've got to answer it in two minutes. And that did a huge amount of good. You know, and we, the, <laughs> the, the, the rule only had to be in place for a week or so. But once people got the idea, then they couldn't imagine not being that way because they were here. You've got a product manager saying, I can't be bothered. And then the team, a team of eight people goes off for six hours and does the wrong thing and then has to throw that work away. There's no possible economic justification for that. So the way that they can now, the, the thing though, is that they cannot see themselves as an intermediary between the customer and the developers. So the other key thing I think that product people have to be doing is they have to be facilitating direct communication between the developers and the customers. And setting up meetings so that they can talk directly to each other, not acting as an intermediary. And then during that, those meetings and during the whole development process, the role of the product manager is basically to constantly be harping on, does this fit into our company strategy? Does this fit with the needs of the market? Does this fit with, you know, all of those kinds of product questions? And you've got to have somebody that's working with the team pulling things into, into place, if you will. Now, they're not ordering people around. They're just asking the right questions more often than not. But the, you know, it, it seems to me that a dysfunctional product owner is one who orders people around, who says, we are going to work on these three stories this sprint. And if you don't like it, I don't care. Right? We don't need that. And I see a lot of that. Right? I see a lot of, a lot of push. Right? I'm a big fan of pull systems. And I see a lot of push systems centering around Scrum and product owners and that kind of thing, where the product owner is basically assigning work to the teams. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. Even in the Scrum Guide, that's not the way it's supposed to work, but you, but you still nonetheless see it a lot. So the product owner has very little to do with the actual collection and refinement of stories. That's down at the bottom of the list, right? Because the stories come from the customers and the people who need the details about implementing them, which is to say the details of the customer's problems, are the developers, right? So what the product manager is doing is getting those two parties together so they can talk to each other. And then providing the input that the team needs that neither uh, neither the developers nor the customers have, right? A knowledge of the entire market, for example. And so the input that they're providing is invaluable. It's essential. That's strategic input. But yep. as soon as as soon as they become surrogate customers, things start falling apart. Is that that can't? It's not the way it works. 
Yeah, no, I think I agree with much of that. Probably don't have time to pull it all apart, but uh, I think <laughs> one little bookend on that, though, is, and you'd be horrified to know, I'm sure, and probably completely unsurprised that in some companies, the product managers themselves don't even get to talk to customers. So that's a whole yeah, different kettle of fish. What, what is that then? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Well, well, you know, back, back in the dark ages of 30 years ago, <laughs> there was product management as a profession, right? It was business analysis is what it was usually called back then. Yeah. They saw it as their job to design the product, basically. Yeah. And then, then they had to convince the team to implement the thing that they invented. So a lot of the job was uh, a persuasion. You're trying to persuade the team to implement this thing that you came up with as a BA. And those days are fortunately over in the agile world, the actual agile world, but they're not over in the world as a whole, right? Is that the, that's still a lot of, there's a lot of thinking along those lines that's still going on. And I don't think it, I don't think it works. Well, you know, I definitely agree again with most of that. And hopefully we can all be better put up people as we go. But where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about, well, I don't know, test-driven development or map their path to being truly agile or maybe if they just fancy an argument? I, I can give you a whole long list. There's Twitter. Yes. Right? So I'm, I'm at Alan Holub, A-L-L-E-N-H-O-L-U-B. So that's probably the best way to just sort of get into a quick conversation. I do do public classes. Is go on to my website. It's holub.com. In fact, I have a class coming up in about a month. I don't know when this is going to come out, but I have a class coming up on story creation and management that's focused actually on both product owners and developers or product product managers and developers. So I'm going to cover it from both sides. So that, that'll be in the end of September. We'll be out by then. Yeah, we'll be out by then. I do those periodically. I'm writing a book. Oh, wow. The Which people have been after me to write a book for like a couple of years now, and I haven't been willing to do it, but I'm now writing a book. <laughs> Kent Beck kind of inspired me, and I'm stealing his ideas, that he said, we're going to be agile about this. So what he did is he set up a Substack, and he said, okay, I, I don't want to hear from everybody because that would just be chaos. So I'm going to put this little minor $7 a month subscription in the way of everybody being able to chime in. So if you're interested enough that you're willing to bungle up 7 bucks a month, you can contribute. <laughs> and he's doing the book incrementally, one chapter at a time, getting feedback, adjusting based on the feedback he gets, and that kind of stuff. And I'm saying, well, that's, a great, that's a great idea. So I set up a sub stack that's called No Book. Is that the title of is hashtag No, and the <laughs> and it's basically about all the things that we've been talking about, the things that people do, in my <laughs> opinion, wrong, and how can we fix them? Right. Obviously, a book that was just about how to do th- how people did things wrong would not be of much value. So it's mostly, <laughs> mostly about how to fix it. But anyway, I have this. I have the No Book thing going, and eventually, it's going to be on Lean Pub. Oh, there you go. So. You know, the, all these projects, but there we go. And of course, if you want to hire me, hire me. If, if you go to holo.com slash chat, you can set up a video call and we can talk about what you need. Well, there you go. I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and hopefully you'll get a smattering of new Twitter followers and maybe even some teams can come and hire you and give you loads of shiny coins to go and make them better too. <laughs> for shiny coin. I'm, speaking <laughs> as a consultant, I'm all in favor of shiny coin. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's been a fantastic chat. So. Obviously, really appreciate you spending some of your valuable time telling the rest of us what you think and how it should all really work. Uh, Hopefully, we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. My pleasure. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com 
check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>